Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. You know, it's become a feature of living in the 21st century in America. The constant revelations that some of the people you might have thought of as heroes or idols are incurably flawed. And sometimes they're even worse than flawed. That realization is no more potent than it is right now here in southeast Michigan in Ann Arbor. The big news today is that both Schembechler's son, Matt Schembechler, and some other former players have come forward saying that former team doctor Robert E. Anderson molested them. Matt Schembechler excoriated his late father, the legendary football coach, for not protecting him or other victims of Dr. Anderson, despite the fact that he was told repeatedly about what was going on. Now, facts and details are still coming out on this situation, but I think it's really clear that from here on out, the legacy of Bo Schembechler is going to look and feel really different to all of us. But Schembechler isn't the only former U of M football coach whose legacy is in question right now. Recently, the school's Advisory Committee on University History recommended removing the name of Fielding Yost from the university's ice arena. Yost, of course, was U of M's football coach from 1901 to 1926. He's the coach who defined the brand and power of Michigan football. He was also Michigan's athletic director from 1921 to 1940. But my next guest says Yost was not only foundational to the university's success in athletics, he was also a racist who did real harm during his career. Which brings up the much bigger question that we are going to be exploring all hour today. How do we deal with the legacies of people who did terrible things alongside their great successes and achievements? And what should we do about our monuments to those legacies, the names that are on buildings, the statues that sit all over campuses and cities in our country? That's where we begin the conversation today. And we've got someone really great with us to help dive into this question about Fielding Yost in particular at the University of Michigan. John U. Bacon is a sports writer and author who has written extensively on University of Michigan athletics. And he wrote about Fielding Yost in his 1996 book, A Legacy of Champions. John, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Good yes. to be back. Yes, it is great to have you here. So uh, you wrote 25 years ago in your book, A Legacy of Champions, mm-hmm. quote, it could be argued that most of Yost's faults were benign flaws, maybe even necessary evils. But one of Yost's blind spots had no redeeming qualities. He was a racist. So these are not altogether new revelations, but talk about Yost's racism why it hasn't been talked about more in the past, and why this committee at the university has decided now to take up this cause? Well, great questions. When I wrote that in 96, I basically assumed I was going to be excommunicated from the Michigan family. I'm a Michigan alum, um, as are you, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, once, you, once you say that one of the great icons of college athletics, not just the University of Michigan, who, as you pointed out in your introduction, 
essentially built the Michigan athletic program as we know it, and his buildings are still up. I mean, all the other ADs since have not equaled what Philly Nios did in his 20 years, basically, uh, although certainly Don Canham and Bill Martin are up there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but when you say he was a racist, you assume, Stephen, that, okay, this means I'm not going to be invited anywhere. Um, and I was expecting that, and I was prepared for that. If the price for pointing out the obvious racism of Philly Nost is, is that, then I was willing to pay it. But at the time, uh, no one paid much attention to it. They, they liked the book. I got no negative feedback from anybody inside or outside the university. It sold quite well. I'm one of three authors, along with Angelique Shingalis and uh, Bob Wanowski, well-known mm-hmm. to Detroiters, of course. Um, but his racism is, there's no disputing it. It's, uh, first of all, he's born in 1871 in West Virginia. His dad fought for the Confederate side, even though West Virginia was created as a state to be a northern state. So, uh, right there, you have some sense of uh, what you're dealing with. Um, he did not have a single African-American on his team from 1901 to when he stepped down in 1926. And there was George Jewett, a three-time letterman in 1891, um, whose grandson, by the way, was the principal at Tappan Junior High School, where Jim Harbaugh went, and a lot of my friends went. Coleman Jewett, great, great friend of mine. No fan of feeling Yost, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can say there weren't African-Americans who were qualified to get into Michigan, weren't qualified to play football for Michigan. But for 26 years, there were none. So that's one bit of evidence there, obviously. Uh, but the strongest by far is the 1934 Georgia Tech game, when feeling Yost, probably against, well, definitely against anyone's better judgment, um, invited Georgia Tech to play a football game in Ann Arbor. Now, the custom at that time is there are no African-American players uh, in the Southeastern Conference till 1967. Mm. That's how crazy that is. Yeah. So you're 30 years away from that. Um, you invite these guys up there. They have, of course, no African-Americans in their team. But they also, the custom at the time is that they insist that if you have an African-American on your team or two or three, you bench them. And the white team, if you will, from the South, uh, benches players of commensurate ability. Uh, that man, in this case, Willis Ward, um, who went on to become a uh, probate judge of distinction in Detroit, mm-hmm. um, a law school grad, a hotshot guy, uh, also a world-class athlete who beat Jesse Owens in track, and that's a very short list, as you know, um, that they had to bench Willis Ward, a very popular member of the team. He's also the roommate on the road of one Gerald Ford, of course, who went on to become the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have been the first interracial rooming uh, of anybody in the Big Ten, but I don't know that for sure. Um, but anyway, so the team was distraught. Ford threatened to quit. They decided to uh, play after all. Um, they won the game, but the team finished 1-7 and seven that year, still the worst year on record at Michigan. This is striking, Stephen, because they had won national titles the two previous years. Mm-hmm. So you go from two national titles to 1-7, and seven, you can see how this clearly tore the team apart. It also tore the campus apart. The protests were intense. They got national news in Time Magazine and elsewhere. Um, and that genuinely surprised and embarrassed Yost, who should have seen it coming, but he didn't. Um, so on that basis, I don't think there's any dispute. There's zero dispute. He was a racist. So that was not that hard a claim to make. And, and why is this the subject of this university committee's work today, uh, decades, decades after uh, Fielding Yost was coach or athletic director and many, many, many years after his name has been on the, on the hockey arena? Yep. Uh, in fact, of course, Yost himself, a man of substantial ego, uh, put his own name on his own building. That was a first in, in Michigan history. 
uh, the first living person to have his name on a building, which broke with protocol there. 1923 is when he did that, uh, 11 years before the Georgia Tech game. Uh, it's still on there, of course. Um, uh, in some ways, a good question. I mean, I wrote that in 96, and if you want to address it in 96, nothing's stopping you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like we didn't know what a racist was in 96, I can assure you that. Um, but anyway, um, so in 2017, the president of the university, Mark Schlissel, put together a panel of historians, um, eight people uh, of great renown, a MacArthur winner in there, all tenured, um, to study the names on buildings generally. Now, in that process, C.C. Little, who had been president in the mid-20s of Michigan for only four years and didn't really do anything of any note, mm-hmm. um, and nothing was named for him at the time, but in 68, they decided, hey, he was president and there's no buildings for him, so let's name one, so they did ignoring the fact that this guy went on to become the president of the Eugenic Society, which right. is uh, how we're supposed to basically uh, handle our own breeding. Yes, I'm using the correct term. Um, uh, to forward our DNA, which is, of course, an utterly racist and utterly unscientific uh, proposal. And then, of course, for good measure, he became the leading scientist for the tobacco industry, and you know what that entails, of yeah. course. Yeah. Basically, two fundamentally intellectually dishonest endeavors, and... They wisely decided to take his name off that building. That it was clearly the right move, in my opinion, and long overdue. The Yost case uh, is a bit trickier because, unlike C.C. Little, who was only there four years and did nothing, Yost was there for 40 years and did a whole lot. Um, so there's that, and the flip side, of course, is this abject racism. So I did note in my 4,000-word piece, which is on JohnUBacon.com, um, that there were some compensating things later in his life that Willis Ward himself said that he had flip-flopped from being a segregationist. Um, but it's, it's, as, here's the main thing, as you know from the article you already read. Um, as Oscar Wilde said, uh, I'm scrolling down to there it is. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. Right. And this was the case there. That's why I felt I could not do the topic justice in less than 4,000 words. Yeah. <laughs> and the real question is, I mean, these currencies can't be exchanged. He was one of the greatest leaders in the history of college athletics. He was a racist. Now what do you do? Right. Um, both are true. Um, so you can't just deny one or the other, in my opinion, and, and be honest to the, to the historical record. So the question is what to do next. Yeah. So, so in, in your article, you include four ideas uh, for addressing the situation. Mm-hmm. But you also say officials could either keep or remove Yost's name on the arena, and that doesn't matter as much to you. So what are the not. other ideas that you have that you think would have a bigger impact? Sure. I think that... My basic take is this. If you keep it on and do nothing else, or if you take it off and do nothing else, either way, we're acting like the, the problem is solved, and, you know, that's that, and you, you clean your hands of it, and you're done. Now, clearly, I think it should go without saying, leaving the man's name in the building without any explanation whatsoever to what he also did and you know, who he also was um, is not only historically inaccurate, it's insulting, painful, and harmful, to a university campus community that you know wants that where everyone should feel welcome and and valued, so that's that's not going to work. But I also think too, merely taking it off, which is what the committee recommended, with no other uh, actions, that gives you the illusion that okay, we've identified the problem, we've extracted the fly from the ointment, and now all is well. Well, you still his buildings are still on campus, whether we like it or not. He built those, mm-hmm. um, and also as I point out in the piece. It's not like, you know, Fielding Yost's action that day uh, received more negative press than probably anything possibly in the history of the University of Michigan. Um, and yet, 
and yet that's in 1934, blacks and whites could not uh, room together in dorms until the early 1960s. Uh, dean of women students Deborah Bacon, I'm pleased to say, Stephen, absolutely no relation to yours truly. <laughs> um, if uh, a white woman was seen socializing with a black man, she would send a letter home mm-hmm. to the woman's parents, uh, warning them of this fact. Um, this is in the early 1960s. This is when you know Kennedy's already been on campus mm-hmm. to introduce the Peace Corps on the steps of the Michigan Union. This is not ancient history, not to me. Um, so to merely extract Yost is to act like the, the rest of the university did not have its own problems. So my solutions are the following. Um, I only had two weeks to think about this, but first name the track for Willis Ward, and that's not gratuitous. Mm-hmm. The man was a world-class decathlete yes. and would have made a big impact, I believe, in the Olympics if the Georgia Tech game had not taken the wind out of his sails. He had mm-hmm. beaten Jesse Owens a few times in sprints. He might be the only man to have done that, which is saying something. Yes. Um, as I say, keep the name on, Yost's name on or off, but either way, devote a sizable room inside for a museum of Yost and Ward's lives and the ordeal that will link them forever. Explain the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between. I'm following Ken Burns, Ann Arbor native. Mm-hmm. His great advice, which I use when I teach this in my class, you have to look at the whole person. You can't flinch from any of it. Uh, good people do bad things, and bad people do good things. That's it's a complicated world. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I say about this one: spare nothing, own all of it every day that building's open. And by the way, while you're at it, three students were expelled for protesting the war decision uh, by Yost, and they were expelled by the president uh, and never got their degrees. They're long gone, sadly, but. Uh, give their families posthumous degrees to the University of Michigan. That is long overdue. Mm. Um, when you open the museum, sponsor a symposium, discuss all of the above. And one I threw in at the last minute, but it seems quite obvious now, create a class, racism at Michigan, and study the subject in earnest. And why we're not doing that already is uh, there are thousands of classes at Michigan. Uh, why we're not doing that already is a mystery. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with uh, John U. Bacon. He is uh, a writer, uh, sports writer, author, uh, all-around uh, knowledgeable guy about uh, sports and especially about University of Michigan athletics. Uh, he wrote about Fielding Yost in his 1996 book, A Legacy of Champions. We're talking about the fact that the university committee has recommended taking Yost's name off of the university's ice arena because uh, of how much of a racist uh, he was. Um, John, I, I want to cast this forward uh, uh, to today when we're all reading more and more about uh, this relationship between Beauchamp Beckler and his son, but also uh, the relationship between lots of former players and uh, not just football players but lots of former University of Michigan athletes who all say that Dr. Robert Anderson um, uh, molested them when, uh, when he was examining them uh, at the university. Uh, I, it, I, I know that it's early, and there's a lot that we don't know uh, about how all this worked. Uh, it's going to be really hard, I think, uh, to, to piece it all together because so many of the people who were involved in in these relationships uh, are no longer with us, and so they they can't um, they right. cannot give their side of the story. Um, but it does seem to me uh, to raise this, the same questions that the Yoast controversy raises, in the sense that uh, this is about iconography in college sports, and especially at U of M. Uh, you know, uh, U of M is like many 
athletic powerhouses in that uh, you know we create heroes out of the people who uh, who lead the programs, uh, who build the programs, and uh, the, there's always a danger that uh, that that iconography does not reflect the fullness of someone's person or character. Uh, Bo Schembechler, I think, will will now f- forever be thought of very differently, and I think some of that iconography probably is in jeopardy as well. Uh, undeniably true. Um, as I, when you and I scheduled this on Monday, after the big piece on Filinos came out, mm-hmm. uh, having no idea what the rest of the week was going to hold, of course. <laughs> right. um, and, yeah, life is what happens when you make another plan, right? Mm-hmm. So there we go. Um, in the Yost case, the report came out uh, three Mondays ago. And, of course, on Twitter and elsewhere, everyone's saying, hey, what do you have to say about this? And I'm getting calls for interviews, and I declined them all, um, saying, I don't, you know, <clears throat> I don't have it together yet. <clears throat> and it took me basically two weeks working halftime to put together the 4,000 words, and I'm ready to talk. Uh, I kind of feel the same way right now about the Bo Schimbecker situation, that uh, the press conference happened yesterday when I was driving down from up north, and it, it comes as news to people on Twitter that, no, I did not schedule my life around press conferences for books I'm no longer writing. <laughs> but... Uh, so I've not seen the press conference yet. I'm going to. Uh, I've seen a couple of the articles, a bit of the response, but not a lot of it. Um, but we can say some obvious things here, um, for starters. One is that Dr. Anderson seems to have 800 victims. There's no spinning any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he was allowed to practice for 25 years at Michigan is an abject institutional failure of you know, colossal proportions. And I've talked to probably about a dozen or so of the victims. That's a, you know... Uh, drop in the bucket of the 800, but uh, the damage done is real. There's, there's no, that's, and that's no surprise. Um, but when you talk to a friend of yours about it and these big tough guys get choked up and whatnot, you realize just how much the damage, you know, uh, how real the damage is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question, of course, is Bo's role in this, and that's being hashed out now. Um, but, uh, and I mean, what we do know is nobody stopped it, you know, and that includes Bo, that includes Don Canham. Um, how much opportunity they had to stop it, you know, that's being hashed out now. Um, but, uh, but we can say that without question. And there's no question that, look, yesterday was a very sad day for Michigan Athletics. Yeah. Um, no matter what is ultimately determined going forward, I would urge the University of Michigan to, uh, forces are made to hire a third-party uh, investigation. Uh, they hired the Wilmer Hale hotshot uh, law firm out of D.C. to do mm-hmm. the first investigation, which had very little about Bo in it. Um, but they should, if they're going to make decisions about buildings and statues and so on, they should do the same thing um, on this front, is my opinion. So, and I'll be writing about this probably about two weeks from now also. Yeah. That's how long I take. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually one of the great things about you, John, is that uh, you're not just uh, a font of opinion. Uh, you know, y- you take some time to, to read up and think about things and, and then come out with, uh, with what you think about it. And, and uh, I think uh, the discourse uh, is better for that. So, well, I appreciate uh, that. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, an uh, ink stained wretch yourself, of course, one of my favorite journalists. Uh, that means a lot, so I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, uh, John U. Bacon, uh, it's always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Anytime. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about the legacies of flawed historic and cultural icons with University of Alabama professor Hillary Green. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to continue our conversation about reckoning and digging through the past as we try to reconcile the legacies of historic figures within the context of our current thinking and our modern world. And, of course, we want to hear from you during this conversation. What do you think about the Yost Arena controversy at the University of Michigan? Should the name of the racist, powerful football coach of the 1920s and 30s at the university, uh, should his name come off the ice arena because he was a racist? And more broadly, what do you make of this moment of colleges and universities and communities re-examining figures who were immortalized through monuments and building names and other iconography? As we continue to explore this topic, I'd like to welcome Hillary Green, who is an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. Dr. Green also serves as the co-program director of the African American Studies Program at the University of Alabama and has been doing a great deal of work around this issue on that school's campus. Dr. Green, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me today. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in the renaming process of some markers and monuments at the University of Alabama. And I know you started doing this work back in 2015. The, mo- the momentum and the mainstreaming of this movement has come a really long way since then. So I- I'd love to have you talk about how this movement has evolved from when you started in, in 2015. Yeah, so for me, I started this work because of a student in my classroom. Because um, as a historian, I always look at building names and the people behind the buildings and monuments and markers, and I bring that into my classes. But I had a black male student my second semester at the university say that slavery did not exist there. So why are we studying it on the history of the campus? And our, you, University of Alabama still has slave cabins that survive mm-hmm. on the campus and markers and building names, a very problematic building ties to slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow segregationists and the like. Wow. So for this black male student to not see the campus and to buy in the myths that all was well because UA had desegregated and there was no history of race or slavery on the campus. As a junior, it made me fair, realize like we the work I had to do outside the class. And that's why I started doing an alternate campus tour. When I first started, it was only black students who took it and those who were interested in social justice issues. But then Charleston happened and Charlottesville happened. And it was Charlottesville in particular and white college students at the University of Virginia, their alumni and others who came to that rally in khakis and white t-shirts and collared shirts that I started to have campus conversation like, what should we do with our landscape? Do we have a Confederate monument? Hmm. What what should we do with these building names? Because it's being mobilized to say that as our diversity should not exist. The people who are now no longer slaves that were worked the campus and we had this rich diverse and we celebrate that with our, our prize winning football team and everyone else 
has no place at the University of Alabama and other college campuses that had slavery. They were white-only spaces. Mm. And that's where the conversation really shifted. And people started to engage and listen to one another. So I started having people take the tours. And the tours started off as a classroom, like in my classes. And up to March of 20 last year, because I went on sabbatical, I had up to 5,000 people take this in-person tour. Hmm. My classes have shifted. And it was in that momentum and that conversation that people were aware when George Floyd happened and students started to ask, what should we do? And they crafted the petition. They used the information that they learned in the conversations we had and sent it to the school. But one of the things that shocked them, they didn't expect UA administration to respond because they had ignored previous requests. So the fact on June 8, 2020, the University of Alabama removed three Confederate markers and the next day removed its Confederate monument from the wow. central part of the quad, put it, lifted it up in the air, put it on a flatbed, <laughs> and then announced that they were going to rename some buildings is because of the conversations post-Charlottesville, more people asking. And that petition that had, the two petitions that came through had over 10,000 signatures. Wow. Uh, So what we've been talking about this hour is sort of complicated legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, People who did great things, uh, achieved lots, but, but also have, you know, darker sides of their lives where they also did, terrible things. Um, And I think when we think of the South and we think of uh, slavery and Jim Crow, uh, we think of these things in starker uh, terms, right? Uh, There isn't anything redeeming about, uh, you know, Confederate generals, for instance. But, but, But I do wonder, at the University of Alabama, if you have also these kind of complicated stories and complicated figures that you're not quite sure what to do with uh, the iconography that, that, that represents them. Oh, yes. And we have a lot of those <laughs> building names. Mm-hmm. So when I, I never just say removal's the easy part. And, and in fact, it's easy to remove a name. That still doesn't change the legacy. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, tell the full story of these people. Tell the people who were honored before, and in particular, um, how we have former governors like Bib Graves, who was a white supremacist, Klansman, but as a governor, he ends convict leasing. As a governor, he funnels some money, not a lot, it's still Jim Crow education to the Mm -hmm. Alabama um, um, HBCUs in the state that are segregated. And he did some good things for a few people, but I'm like, he was a Klansman. So either you keep that building name, fine, but you don't have to tell him, like, he was a Klansman. Don't say he was a statesman. Mm-hmm. He was the, he was a Klansman. <laughs> he also did a whole bunch of other stuff. Tell the full story in that building. So for me, use it as an opportunity to tell the full history or don't select which pieces. So it gets very complicated um, for every single building name. And some it's easy, others are not. So how you draw that line is where it's community-based solutions. Mm-hmm. And as a college campus, if you profess diversity, equity, inclusion, and you profess that you welcome all spaces, I have black students who do not feel comfortable because they have to walk in the buildings named after people who told them you don't belong here. Right. You want to probably wouldn't 
yeah, you're human and you are worthy of being killed or lynched. So, or to be enslaved. So you have to recognize both sides of that. So for me, if it's causing harm or trauma, maybe we should revisit, listen, and come with a community-based solution on the buildings. But if you keep a building name, just because you keep the name doesn't mean you can't do any contextualization inside the building, change the tours. There's a lot more work that has to be done. Hmm. But yeah. 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 I'm, I'm talking with Hillary Green. She's an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama. She also serves as the co-program director of the African-American Studies Program uh, at the university. We're talking about complicated figures in our history and what we do with them. We'd love to hear from you during this conversation. What do you think about the Yost Arena controversy at the University of Michigan? And more broadly, what do you make of this moment when we see so many colleges and universities and communities re-examining the figures who are immortalized through monuments and building names and uh, other kinds of uh, honors? Uh, Are you concerned that this is a slippery slope? Or is it past time to be taking action and removing the legacy of these problematic figures? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Annette in West Bloomfield. Annette, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you today? And thank you for having me on. Sure. Go ahead. I love the subject. I think that's perfect. It's not uh, a new thing. It should have been done, oh, so many years ago. I grew up in uh, a, a different situation. My father was a Holocaust survivor, and he taught me not to hate. And we also learned about people who were anti-Semitic or people who hated Jews, which were people like Henry Ford the first, mm-hmm. Walt Disney also disliked and was anti-Semitic. It makes it very difficult. I get the idea. I, I prefer what both your first and second guests talked about is to give the whole picture of a person so that they understand what is going on and, and different things, because I know that no one's perfect, but if we continue on the other side create a hateful environment we still won't understand the world and the world hasn't changed too much for you a person of color Mm -hmm. and me a person who happens to be jewish Mm. i don't understand the world if you can help make it better i appreciate all your people who are talking about it so Thank you for the subject again. Yeah, Annette, uh, thanks so much for that call and those thoughts. Uh, Hillary Green, I wonder if you have a reaction to Annette's uh, Hey, no, I, I agree. And this is why I decided to do an alternate walking tour and walk the campus with people and to tell the history using the university archives. All my work came from the University of Alabama-owned archives and telling those fuller stories so people could see and understand the complexity of that space, but we're telling the whole story rather than part of the story. And it was in those conversations that together as a community, we decided maybe we should not be honoring these people because they'll never be forgotten because they're they're going to have to take my class eventually. <laughs> but <laughs> that doesn't mean we have to see that every day in our faces mm. and those buildings to say that we we value what they stood for and a portion of what they stood for, because monuments don't teach. Monuments do a very poor job at teaching. People yeah. do. 
So if we tell the full stories in our classrooms through these alternate walking tours, through um, curricular, and then building names, if you choose to, or museums, that's a better way to teach, bring the people in to do that, but tell the full story complete, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, again, Annette, uh, thanks so much for the call mm-hmm. and uh, the thoughts. Let's go to Tim in Bagley. Hey, Tim. what's going on? Good hey. morning. Uh, yeah, most unfortunate news. Um, you know, the Bo Beckler controversy is, of course, going to really drag down that man's legacy. He now is in league with uh, the coach from uh, Penn State, Michigan State. All of this is not – this is just a, the the – tipping point, actually. Mm. People need to be fully aware of, you know, the human dynamics of human psychosexuality. Uh, It springs up anywhere. It's lurking around every bush, every tree, every institution, every person, and no one really can be free from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second of all, the Yoast situation, that's what's the problem going on now. We look at these legacies, we look at these general elite statues, we look at the, the building of the program, the school, oh, everything is magnificent. Does that really throw a wet blanket over the bigger, larger fact that you bench players because they're black, because that's the way the things are, because you don't want these African Americans to come and get their degrees, so you do things to get them expelled, as we just learned in your previous statement. Mm -hmm. So I think anything that someone does that is counterintelligence, counter everybody, You know, I'm sorry, Mr. Yost's name has to come off. And, of course, he did a lot of great things, but Walt Disney did, too. Mm. But when we learned about him, uh, everything is just diminished to a greater greater level. So, so Tim, uh, you say that Yost's name has to to come down. Oh, yeah. Do you you think... but you're not saying that's enough. I mean, it's not enough just to erase that, right? I mean, you, you, you do have to sort of tell that full story, right? Well, if, for example, we were talking about many people have been on your show and news programs, oh, we don't like them tearing down our iconic soldiers of the past. Why are they tearing down our statues? Well, I don't think those types of statues that celebrate the um, Civil War past and what those who wanted to fight for the South wanted to, to you know, maintain. Remove those statues. Send them to the Smithsonian. Create a brand new exhibit. This is where we have come from to be a better country today, the Southern past, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. When we're talking about coaches and athletic directors and whatnot who have done such a tremendous job to build these, these programs and these physical plants, and then we find out that these ugly skeletons come to be, uh, you know, I'm sorry, they have got to, and we can do the same thing, within the beautiful hallowed halls of somewhere <laughs> in one of those beautiful, magnificent buildings on campus, put his name back up somewhere. Because of him, we've got this building, that building. We have a great structure. We've got this and that. But make sure it's in the back somewhere. And if somebody wants to be bold enough to put a nice little footnote, he had some very difficult times with himself and race. This is why we have a very small section of him now. Uh, Tim, I appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Hillary Green, I wonder what your reaction is to Tim's ideas. Honestly, I am. Uh, I agree about this. But one thing I would add is Confederate monuments, when they put those up, they were already a fabrication of what the Civil War meant. Mm-hmm. And they were done at the, the height of lynching. 
removal of African-Americans from public spaces. So they were actually undemocratic in their placement. Mm -hmm. And they were done to tell African-Americans, you're not a citizen and to know your place. You don't belong. So for me, they're on the same page. I think they all should go. (laughs) Uh, uh, But Mm -hmm. museums are one way there. But I don't think museums want them either. So, but I think we should be very careful in the future. What do we do with the money we receive from these Mm -hmm. buildings? How do we name going forward? Because who we honor now, we don't know what their skeletons will be down the road. Are we going to push this conversation again 50 years from now? So, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Hillary Green from the University of Alabama. And we will continue to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. And we'll try to work them into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. on 101.9 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We're talking today about icons and legacies and race and removal, all of the things that we see in the headlines these days uh, from the University of Michigan, uh, from other places around the country as we reevaluate the legacies of so many historical figures. Some of them did amazing things, achieved lots in their lives, uh, but they also had uh, real flaws. Uh, Some of them were prolific racists. Uh, We're learning that uh, Bo Schembechler, the legendary football coach at the University of Michigan, uh, may very well have turned his face away from unbelievable sexual abuse that was happening uh, to his players. What do we do with these complications around these figures? What do we do with the things that we've erected to immortalize these figures, the monuments, the the names on buildings and other things uh, that really reflect the reverence that we that we have or had uh, for these folks. We want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. And we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, My guest is Hillary Green. Uh, She's an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama and also serves as the co-program director of the African American Studies Program at that university. Uh, Let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Rob, Rob in Wald Lake, what's on your mind? Thanks for taking my call. You know, I, I agree with those folks who said that you know, the sports uh, arenas that are named, uh, Schembechler, Yost, and the rest, those are easier calls for the university. I think those names should come off those buildings, and they should at least be put in context, and people should understand the whole person. The second nicest building on every campus, though, is usually the School of Business, because there's a business school mm-hmm. uh, where some businessman is, is tried to now burnish their legacy by donating some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars to the university. A. Alfred Taubman went to jail. Are we going to change the name of the A. Alfred Taubman School of Business at the University of Michigan? And it wasn't a, a serious crime like selling a joint to an undercover officer. He, he was price fixing, mm-hmm. right? He went to jail mm-hmm. in his 70s. 
you the did. university took that money and, and named that building. I doubt very much they're going to unname it. And it's not just them. It's every other business. Hmm. So, 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 Rob, I think you, you raise a really great point, which is uh, the, the, the slippery slope question. Uh, how far do we go in reconsidering the legacies of, of people who have you know, reached the status where you're naming a building after them or erecting a statue? Uh, Todman's a, a, a wonderful example, somebody who did go to, to, to jail for price fixing. Is that the same as being a racist or turning your head uh, from from sexual abuse, uh, uh, Hillary Green. I wonder uh, what you make of of the limitations of this well, and where they should where they should stand. I actually think it's up to the university campus, and this is where looking at other universities matter because um, University of Alabama did rename a business school after a donor because he tried to change the. Uh, input um, hiring of faculty. Hmm. So it has been done. There are <coughs> precedent. And it came after it was a, the board of trustees that made that decision. So this is where I think goes back to values and values of institutions and where they're going forward. So for me, one of the things of uh, the removal part is I've been advocating for, can we have a remade naming policy? of how we rename these, how we name them from the beginning, because jail time, is that something you want to reflect as a business school, especially for price fixing, how you do that? And that's one of the interesting stories that came out of the University of Alabama. That was one of the first um, renamed, they renamed the whole school and they did it within 24 hours. So, wow. so it is possible, but this is where I think it goes back to the institutions and the communities and what values they profess, yeah. what money they take, and at what point as a community decide, like, maybe this isn't here. Do you have rights? But I think instead of having it just one or two off things, have an official policy up front for both removal and naming might yeah. get us out of this slippery slope question that people are raising. How far is too far? What's well, not enough? And there is something... Uh, it's not uniquely American, but it is very American. <laughs> this idea of lionizing people with statues or building <laughs> names and, and things like that. And, you know, I think you raise a really interesting point about how we might rethink all of that, uh, not just in the context of specific people, but but how are we coming up with the, the reason to do it in the first place? And that is more about us, I guess, as a people than it is about these individuals. Exactly. And I think it's because the, one of the things is, we put we are trying to honor someone and whoever is doing that honoring um, and what they have values. But over time, values and communities have changed so much. Is that reflective of the present community? They has to do that, um, especially with issues about race um, and racism, but also money and how they got their money, uh, especially if you get money from people who get it from mercenary business practices. Do you want to honor a business building after him or a law school after a person? So the renaming of colleges and universities is starting to slowly there be there. But it goes back to, is this our values as we profess today? Hmm. How do we do this as a community to move forward? Is this to help us move forward as a future in a healthier community or not? And those are the hard questions. So when I say to people like, removing a building name is easy. And a building name's easy, but what do you do with that person? You put that on there. 
how do you how do you do those hard conversations? Yeah, yeah. And it should be the starting point, not the ending point. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, uh, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. As usual, timely conversation. Thank you. Uh, I have uh, been involved with this question of uh, monuments to the Confederacy and in particular to uh, generally the senior leaders of the Confederate armies. And I have been arguing that you take the statues and you put them in history museums where you can do that teaching function that monuments can contribute to. Mm-hmm. But both of your guests have reminded me of a lesson that I was taught by an early history teacher, that that study of history has to be done with a sense of modesty, and you have to remember that all people have feet of clay, and, that, and our heroes will be tomorrow's infamous people. I don't think any of us want to see what they used to do in the Soviet Union, where uh, criminologists knew you could tell who was coming up and who was going down by, by whether they were on the podium at the annual Lenin Day Parade. If someone was coming down, they would actually go and excite them, dead people, from history books. So that wow. future students wouldn't learn that area fell from grace in the 1950s. I don't think any of your, either of your guests want to go down that road, and I no. certainly don't want to yeah. do that. But you Ed, I, hit it right on the nose. Yeah, I uh, appreciate, as always, uh, the call and the thoughts. Uh, Dr. Green, I wonder what your reaction is. Well, I always look at that period of history and the role of the other role that the United Daughters of the Confederacy did. It wasn't just monuments. They did a very instrumental teaching campaign. Mm-hmm. So people at the time, and I'm thinking about Karaji Woodson and Asala, challenged those textbooks by developing an alternate curriculum guide by having PhDs and the Negro History Bulletin and others, because those early textbooks that were quite up, used up until the 70s and even when my childhood in the early 80s said slavery was good, so slaves were happy. <laughs> so it wasn't mm-hmm. even history at that point. It right. was a version of history that was there. So for me, all of that becomes fodder to teach my students of how the longer with information in the classroom where we pull out old textbooks, we go there, we don't excise them, but we do talk about the context and really look at critical engagement with that. However, most people don't get to see my classrooms and be <laughs> able to do that work. Right. So I'm really concerned about textbooks who still promote these very hey, um, glorified whitewashed histories that were never truthful in the beginning. And for how do we change that? So whatever process we have, we're looking at the curriculum and education alongside that. Because I think it both are the same logics and they came about the same time and both need to be tackled at the same time. But yeah. excising textbooks and just throwing them out, no, but use them as historical artifacts, yes. Yeah, yeah. Ed, as always, uh, thanks for the call. Let's go to Chris in Macomb Township. Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, good morning. I just wanted to pass along that the University of Princeton struck Woodrow Wilson's name from their School of Public Policy and International Affairs, which is one of the most prestigious, probably the best program in the United States for public policy and international mm-hmm. affairs. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I saw yeah. that they did that. Go ahead, Dr. Green. 
Yeah, and I, I said mistake about um, the Culver House. It was the law school that they renamed <laughs> and returned his money, by the way. Mm. But the huh. Princeton example was very interesting. That was one of the first. I was like, oh, okay, we're moving beyond buildings to colleges mm-hmm. and schools. And that is not an easy decision to do because you think about the branding and what was there. So I don't take those decisions lightly and those developments lightly because I know the what went behind the scenes. So if the fact that Princeton made that big decision and schools are making that big decision, I think University of Chicago is about to do one with their school after John Marshall. That is huge. So when we look at that, instead of saying they were wrong, ask how they did that and why. Yeah. Because that's not an easy decision to do. It's not. It's not. Okay, uh, Dr. Hillary Green, it was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. And, and I, I'm just uh, overwhelmed by the, uh, the work that you're doing there at the University of Alabama. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will too. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news music, and conversation. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again on Monday.